0: John Joe McFadden is the author of Life is Simple, how Occam's razor sets science free and shapes the universe. He obtained his PhD at Imperial College London and went on to work on human genetic diseases and then infectious diseases at the University of Surrey. Professor McFadden has specialized in examining the genetics of microbes, such as the agents of tuberculosis and meningitis. His other books are Quantum Evolution, Life in the Multiverse, and Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology, co-authored with Jim al Khalidi. He has published more than 100 articles in scientific journals on a wide range of subjects and lectures around the world.
1: Professor John Joe McFadden, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Thank you, Mia. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So your book, Life is Simple, it's really an elegant idea, The Survival of the Simplest. You know, just help us understand how life emerged by embracing maximal simplicity.
2: Essentially, what the thesis of the book is that science is really about finding simple solutions. And I guess one of the other themes of the book is that life appears like a scientist. It finds the simplest solutions to problems. And that's because There's a mechanism in natural selection whereby stuff that necessary gets removed by mutations. We lose stuff that is no longer useful for us, like tails, for example, we, our ancestors had tails and we don't because natural selection tends to go for simple solutions. And that's really where what's made natural selection so successful. And it's also what makes science so successful too.
1: Indeed. And it's also true. Simplicity is hard to get to that elegance. It's hard. Just give us a little bit of a background of William of Ockham and the environment. Part one of your book, it gives that whole background of the intellectual climate.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, one of the things that's always puzzled me is why did, why did science start in the West? It could have started in so many other places. In China, it was much more advanced than the West at the time. So was the Middle East, the Arab-speaking countries. And yet science came from the West. I think William Wackham played a role in that, but it was a role to bring science out of the model of philosophy, theology, and religion really that prevailed throughout the world, as well as the West. And really when you set out to explain something such as say the moon going around the earth or the sun going around the earth or the planets moving in various ways. The standard method was just to overcomplicate things, to make things as complex as possible. You put a god out there to push the sun around the sky in his fiery chariot. You put the moon goddess there to move the moon. And if you wanted to explain where the wind comes from, it's some giant blowing from a mountain somewhere. If you wanted to explain how sickness comes, you just say, well, some evil spirit that infects people. Instead, there was no attempt to really try to rationalize stuff. The usual approach was, if you've found something you didn't really understand, you invented a new entity to cancel it. Now, William of Ockham was a theologian, really, but he's closer to being a logician. He worked with logic and he went to study theology at the University of Oxford. He had an uncertain history. We don't really know anything about his childhood other than he was given to the Franciscans which gives you a clue he might have been an abandoned child, an orphan child, an illegitimate child, and just left at the monastery. So we don't really know anything much about his early life, but we do know he went to Oxford to study theology. And to give you a feeling for what the problem was, really, theology was at that time called the Queen of Sciences. And that's because the way that people thought about the world is that theology, religion, metaphysics were all one. So, yes, they had gods or angels in the sky pushing the heavenly bodies, and they had those spirits on earth causing plagues and stuff. And it was all one place. Everything was one place, but with lots and lots of entities. And part of this, and also part of the reason for why it was called a science, is that Thomas Aquinas, a century earlier, another great theologian, had incorporated Aristotle's philosophy into Christian theology and come up with what he called theology as a science, in which he, for example, supposedly used Aristotle's science to prove the existence of God in five different ways. So that meant that when a theologian went to study at Oxford or Paris or any of the other great European universities, they studied questions, what are the gates of heaven made of and whether angels can exist in the same place or not. Can they exist in many places? They studied these questions like scientific questions. So there wasn't really a a difference between science and religion and philosophy and and theology. William of Oppen came along and said, no, this is all nonsense. He just waved his razor through everything and said, if you don't require an entity to explain something, throw it out. And he got rid of a lot of the metaphysics. He disproved all of Aristotle's, all of Aquinas' proofs of God, which Pope Francis could try as a very radical thing to do. And he insisted at the end that there was a big difference between science and religion or theology. Science, he said, was based on reason and always finding the simplest solution. Religion was based on faith and it had no allegiance to the simplest solutions. You could fact, as many things as you like in religion. And as far as we know, he remained devout throughout his life, but he separated science from religion. The only time that's happened in the world was then. It did not happen in the Arabic world. It did not happen in the Chinese world. It did not happen in other systems of thought. It happened once. So William Vocal was the first person to say it. And I think that's remarkable. And it's remarkable that we don't really appreciate him for that. He insisted on that and was charged with heresy. He had to go and answer charges before the Pope in Avignon. He ended up calling the Pope a heretic. So he had to flee Avignon, chased by a posse of Papal soldiers, and was rescued by the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. So he has an interesting history in his own right. And he seems like an interesting person. The more I found out about him, the more I became fascinated with this almost completely unknown guy. But the thing he's most known for today is this razor. He established the principle that in science, you always go for the simplest solution. And throughout science through the ages, that's what scientists have done. Or at least the good scientists, the really famous scientists like Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, that's what they've done. They've gone for simplifications and that's really how science has worked through the ages.
1: It's very interesting, and you go into depth with this intertwining of religion and science. And I've noticed through conversations that we've had with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, there is some, not all, but there is this kind of returning to maybe what can we learn from metaphysics as it relates to consciousness and good scientists, but they're like, maybe there's something else there and that can be brought into science and strengthen science.
2: And yeah, I, I guess I'm amongst those scientists who believe the door open for something. But at the moment, that door is open, but vacant. There's nothing, I think, that we need to take from metaphysics or supernatural that has any validity. Now, I still think that there may be something else there. I find consciousness baffling and fascinating, the idea that we have feelings and we have great thoughts and listen to music or read poetry and you get a kind of feeling there's something out there. But the key thing is that we can't build our science on it yet. Maybe in the future we might find some way, but I think if we do, it's got to be built on the same kind of approach as we use science. Get rid of stuff that doesn't have a sound foundation, that you don't need to explain things. And that's really been the foundation of science. It's also, I think, been the foundation of modernity. We now no longer believe in the divine right of kings, for example. That was something that kings invented to give themselves power from heaven. And now we don't believe it. So in other words, you'll only accept an entity into your philosophy if it helps. If it explains stuff that's there. Just calling, if we accept love, say, is something outside of science, then just saying there's a God of love or something doesn't help at all. It just provides another name to throw at God as well as love itself. So get rid of the things that you don't need to name, with the things that you don't have to invent and just deal with the things in themselves. And this is one of the features of William of Ockham's philosophies. He was also what's called a nominalist, which said, get rid of anything that you don't need and just deal with objects as they are as you see them. And that's really also the foundation of science.
1: Yes. I don't mean to go into that thread. I think in science, a, but there is that great deal of creativity, of course, and there may be something that's always elusive or a mysterious. Where do ideas come from? And some of those great moves forward might've just occurred to someone not being able to piece together the whole, the logical steps, but then we're able to support it with science. I want to also speak about your theory of consciousness later in life is simple. It's really fascinating how you apply Occam's razor through these important scientific discoveries. And so many heliocentrism, quantum mechanics, DNA, natural selection, you wouldn't think, and you mentioned Aquinas and Plato, Darwin and Doppler and many others. Were there any major scientific discoveries that you found hard to view through that lens or could just walk through some of those?
2: Yes, what started me on this quest for simplicity was my own discipline. I am a biologist and I work particularly in an area of biology called systems biology, which arose from an anti-reductionist thread in biology that came after the Human Genome Project. As everyone knows, the Human Genome Project was extraordinarily successful. It was sequenced the human genome, since then we sequenced lots of human genes and genomes from other species. But it hasn't really delivered on its initial promise of revolutionizing medicine. There have been some important advances come out of the Human Genome Project, but not nearly as many as people have been anticipating. And that has led to a re-evaluation of what we think a gene is. It used to be taught one gene, one phenotype. That's the standard DOMA. One gene, one phenotype. If you've got blue eyes, then there's a gene for blue eyes, and just so on. What's become apparent since the human genome project is that genes are more complicated and entangled with each other. I use a line, some of my lectures from Midnight's Children by the Indian author, Samuel Rushdie, his beautiful book, but it's a strange book because, and he points it out from about a third of the way through the book, when you meet the central character and says, this is who we're going to be talking about the rest of this book. Sorry it takes so long to introduce him because, and he before that, he spent time with his grandparents, his parents, his uncles, the his state of India at the time, the partition, the state of the world, nuclear threats, and all this kind of thing. It was all there. And he'd said a line, which I think is a beautiful line, and said, to understand a single life, you have to swallow the world. Now I think we are realizing to understand a single gene, you have to swallow the entire genome. Because all genes interact with each other, so you don't really know what a gene does unless you know what it's doing with all the other genes. So that means that genes are kind of all entangled and they're complicated things. And that's the science of systems biology. We're using mathematical models, computer models, to pull a lot of genes together and try to understand the holistic approach of trying to understand the entire system rather than dissecting it into its parts. And that's what I work with. And a colleague of mine called Hans Vesterhoff is one of the instigators of this approach and this field. And he gave a talk at my institute many years ago in which it was Occam's razor has no place in biology. And he could see the sense of that in what I've been saying that you can't dissect stuff. And I was puzzled by that at the time because I'm a fan of Occam's razor and that got me to finding out more and more about Occam's razor. But even in a science like systems biology... You can't take on the whole of the organism, or if you do, what happens is it's like you have to tell the story of every single person in the world in order to explain a single life. You don't. You still need to find the minimum set of number of genes that is enough to explain this experiment. And that's still Ockham's razor. Occam's razor says, entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. And that beyond necessity clause is very important. It's why we know there are nine planets or eight planets in the solar system, not one, because we see the evidence for them. It would be simpler if there was only one planet that we needed to account for in the universe. But we know there's a lot more out there. We know that the world is a complicated place. We know that the cosmos is even more complicated. Occam's razor doesn't deny that, but it says that if you want to explain a particular thing, then choose the explanation that's the smallest number of parts. And you can do that in novels like Samuel Rushdie did in Midnight's Children. He didn't tell you the story of everyone in the world. He told you the story of the people that were relevant. And similarly, in systems biology, you don't need to take all of the genes of an organism into account. You need to take just those that are sufficient to account for what you're trying to account for. And that I think is a principle of systems that is important in systems biology. And it's actually incorporated in Bayesian reasoning, Thomas Bayes' statistics, which automatically chooses simple solutions.
1: So applying that lens to some of those important discoveries, as other important discoveries in science like heliocentrism or DNA or quantum mechanics, to help us understand it and contextualize.
2: Yeah. First one you mentioned, heliocentrists, before Copernicus, the best explanation for the motion of the stars and the planets and the moon and the sun was geocentric. The earth was at the center and everything else rotated. And it made sense. You look outside, the sun gets up in the morning and goes across the sky and sets in the evening. Looks like it's moving around us. Similarly for the moon and the stars rotate around the earth as well. It makes sense. But when you try to account for it mathematically as one of the greatest astronomers of the ancient world, Claudius Ptolemy. Try to do, he found that you have to account for peculiar motions that are hard to account for. Nothing seems to rotate cleanly or only the stars rotate very cleanly in perfect circles around the earth. Everything else has some disturbances and some of them, like the motion of Mars, it will go across the sky and then it'll turn around and come back and then it'll go back in its earlier path, Similarly for Venus and other planets. To account for these, Ptolemy had to introduce complexities such as circles within circles that the Earth was traveling, or no, the Earth was still, or the Earth was at the center and was stationary, but all the other planets and suns and moon and stars, they all rotated on wheels. And then it had to be wheels within wheels. So it was very complicated. What well, Copernicus tackled those problems was, wow, this is too much of a mess. There must be some easier, simpler solution, I'm going to look He found it by putting the sun rather than the earth at the center of the system. And suddenly a lot of that complexity was banished. And you had a simple system, not quite as simple as the one we have today, in which the sun was at the center and the earth is just one of, of eight or nine planets. And that was a much simpler system than Ptolemy's wheels within wheels. Kepler came along later and found that even a better solution and that gave us our slightly elliptical orbits and our current planetary system. Newton, for example, simplified the world in a profound way because prior to Newton, there were two sets of laws. One set of laws that you applied in the heavens to account for the motion of the sun, moon, and stars, and another set of laws down in the terrestrial world to account for the motion of cannonballs, arrows balls rolling down hills or anything like that. And they were a completely different set of rules. What Newton discovered was there was a single set of rules that could account for them all. And it took gravity into account and gravity became a force then. And suddenly you had one set of rules that worked both on Earth and in the heavens. And that was an extraordinary simplification. Two completely different systems. If you wish to understand the heavens, you learned one set of rules. If you wish to understand motion on Earth, you had to learn a different set of rules. Newton said, no, that's actually the same set of rules. And they're very simple. It's three laws plus the gravity law. And they explain vast amounts of phenomena. So what happened then in science is that as science progresses, it actually gets simpler. There are laws that apply to more stuff. So instead of Two laws, one for the heavens, one for the terrestrial world. You have one set. Newton's laws, applied everywhere. But there were still further simplifications to go. For example, space and time. Who would have thought that they're the same thing? And yet Einstein showed that they're the same stuff, really. And that takes two completely different kind of phenomena, so we think. Funnily enough, Ockham had an inkling of this. He said the time is just the motion, is just a kind of motion, which is essentially what I also said. said something like that five centuries earlier. William Walkham had at least an inkling of that idea. And, and quantum mechanics it unifies stuff at the microscopic world with laws that are modified forms of Newton's laws. So you get those laws reaching down into the microscopic world. And people often ask, you say everything is simple, but quantum mechanics isn't simple. It's definitely complicated. The, why it's simple is because if you don't have quantum mechanics, you have to account for lots of weird phenomena in lots of different ways. So quantum mechanics, the laws of quantum mechanics, Schrodinger's equation, for example, very simple equation, very powerful equation that explains so much in the world. And it all works and it accounts for the, Motion of all the fundamental particles. So, electrons, protons, neutrons, neutrinos, all of these can be accounted for in Schrodinger's equation. So, in in quantum mechanics, it is actually a simplification. If you try to make sense of the world without those equations, then what you would have to do is have more equations. So, that's the way that physics has worked. And then in biology, prior to natural selection being discovered simultaneously, more or less, by Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, the only explanation for the vast complexity of the world around us, the world of animals and plants and and microbes, it was independent creation, that everything had to be made by a God. That was the only explanation, the only thing that made sense. There wasn't any other explanation. And then Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace came along and said, actually, no, Here's another explanation. All you need is replication and natural selection and variation of individuals, and you will get different species evolving. So again, it's a simplification. There's still complexity in the world, but it's a lot less of the complexity that there would have to be if you didn't have those insights provided by the great scientists who simplified the world for us.
1: So a few different threads, we could go from there, because I know you have a theory of life that comes out of quantum physics, and, but also on this level where you are talking about the less visible forces. You're working right down on, on microbes and their influence on disease and also electromagnetic waves influencing our consciousness and, and its possibilities for creating sentient AI. So
2: there's a lovely story called They're Made of Meat, Barry Bison is the science fiction author. And it's come up in many discussions about, about life and consciousness. And it describes this curious instance where aliens somewhere in some distant part of the cosmos discover a world where intelligences are made out of meat. And they're aghast and disgusted. How can you make an intelligence out of this stuff that we eat? And they just can't believe it. If you think of meat that you might buy in a butcher's shop, you can and think, okay, that's consciousness. That's where my consciousness resides. And that's already remarkable. You already, if, if you believe that, and most people do in one way or another, you believe the most remarkable fact of the entire universe, that meat thinks, that meat knows that it's there. Now, so that's already bizarre. All I'm saying is actually. You may not need to believe that if you take on board that when it's alive, this meat in our brain, this flesh, all the neural activity, it, every time a neuron fires, it sends a tinier electromagnetic signal into the surrounding tissue, into space, essentially, just a little blip. Every time a neuron fires, all of the neurons firing then is how the information is written in our brain. Everyone and all neurologists accept in one way or another that when we think of, say, a cat, that cat is written in a pattern of neuron firing in the brain. And if you're a meat-based person, you believe the cat, the idea of the cat is written into meat. All, all I'm saying is actually when the neuron fires, well, actually now we get back a step. The problem with that is understanding how it all comes together in our mind. Like I look at windows, I see some trees, I see some clouds, a very complex field of view. Now, if I looked in my brain for the neurons that are encoding, say, the green of the leaves, the brown of the trunk of the trees, the blue of the sky, they'd be in different places of my brain. Some would be over here, some would be over there, some would be over there. Textures and motion will all be encoded in different places. So somehow in this meat, you've got to bring all that information together. And that meat has to somehow then pull that information and bind it together into a single thought. Like what I see when I look out of the window, that's there in a swash. It's completely unified. It doesn't feel like it's stuck in different bits and stuck together with glue. It's single. The sky is blue as well as being above the earth. It doesn't need to have any relationship other than what we see. We can't make an object that doesn't have color. We can't think of an object that doesn't have color and white, of course, is a color. Computers can, they have no problems dealing with objects that don't have colors. We have to always have color on them. So it's always bound. The objects, we have lots of different facets bound into the object in our perception. And that's called the binding problem. Where does all the information come together in our brain? Well, there is a place where it all comes together. Where every time as I mentioned before, every time a neuron fires, it sends a little radio signal into the surrounding space. hundred billion neurons firing sends hundred billion radio signals into the surrounding space. Now, if you imagine freezing those radio signals, taking away the mean, then you have the most complex electromagnetic object in the entire universe that we know of, because it contains all of your thoughts. It's just as complicated. It's just as much information as was in the meat. But now, what the great thing is about it, it's all the information is now unified in a field. And fields are automatically, the electromagnetic fields, they automatically unify information, such that, for example, I have a mobile phone. Inside it, that mobile phone is an antennae. I could watch a movie that is being downloaded from a point, of space, point in space here, or over here, or in the next room, or in the next building, or in the next town, could download that same movie if they're being transmitted from a single router. So that information is everywhere. That's what fields do. The information is everywhere and available at every point in space in the field. So... To solve this binding problem of consciousness, all I'm asking you to do is say let's forget about the meat for a moment and realize that the meat's activities generated this extraordinarily complex electromagnetic field in which all the information in it is completely unified has the same level of unity as a single electron or a single photon It's completely unified, and that is our conscious mind, and that's why it's something special because Objects that don't have this, don't have this vast, huge, complicated electromagnetic field working inside their heads. That's what drives our Mm. conscious thought, our conscious actions, our free will, all of those feelings and emotions, they're all there in this electromagnetic object that is within our skull. And it explains a binding problem, provides an answer to the binding problem. It explains many puzzling features of consciousness. For example, many scientists look for correlates of consciousness to try to understand what it is. The neural activity, and that is responsible for consciousness, which particular part of the brain is associated with conscious thoughts, seems to be there's no particular part of the brain, which particular kind of neurons, it doesn't seem to be any particular kind of neurons. But there's one feature that's always there, and that is when neurons are firing, say if you're I mean, I'm always looking for my glasses somewhere. I have a messy desk and I could be staring at my desk. I can't wear my glasses. Now, if I'm staring at the desk and the glasses are actually there, that information is reaching my retina. It's going into my brain and neurons are firing with that information, but I'm not seeing them. What happens when that moment, aha, there they are. There are my glasses. What happens is prior to me noticing them, the neurons associated with my glasses are firing asynchronously. So they're firing at different rates in different parts of the brain, but asynchronously. When we notice our glasses, then the neurons fire synchronously. Now, what that does is because electromagnetic fields come as waves, if the neurons are firing asynchronously, then the waves tend to interfere with each other to generate zero field. The peak of one wave will meet the trough of another and they'll cancel each other out to zero. But if the waves are firing synchronously, then the peaks of each wave will build up and you'll get a bigger peak and a bigger trough. So when neurons fire synchronously, the electromagnetic information coming out of them is projected into the brain's electromagnetic field because it's firing synchronously. So you get a bigger pulse going into the brain's electromagnetic field. That's where our consciousness lies. So then we say, ha ha, there's my glasses. And as far as I know, there's no theory of consciousness that explains a simple fact other than this, other than all some arbitrary rule. Oh, we are conscious of only the neurons that are firing synchronously. Why? What my theory does is it accounts for it. it says the reason we're conscious of only information in our brain that Encoded by neurons that are firing synchronously is because they project their electromagnetic field information into the brain's conscious electromagnetic field, what I call the conscious electromagnetic information field or CELI field. Can you feel?
1: Yes. And so, as for AI, there's a few branches, of course, because that's very complex despite its elegant simplicity. It takes a lot to get to that realization. But as our AI gets more complex, and it is, it's growing, it's getting complex very rapidly. And there are those that pose that we have to create certain kind of regulations for ethically treating digital minds. It's hard to conceptualize that, even when we when we don't treat animals ethically, yeah. By and large, but I do want to ask because you mentioned like we're surrounded by our devices, we have all these electromagnetic fields that affect, say. Bees who orientate around that. We just had an interesting conversation with Lars Chitka, who wrote "The Mind of a Bee," and it's affecting bees' ability to learn and orientate. What is it doing to us? How is it affecting the way we experience the world?
2: Yeah, there are a number of parts of the question. First of all, about AI. My prediction is that the current generation of AI, although they may become very clever and very intelligent, they will never become conscious and never have that kind of general intelligence, which is a property of our conscious mind, but not our non-conscious mind. And this is another thing that most theories of consciousness don't account for. How is it that you do lots of very complicated things, like the motion of my lips and my larynx and my tongue when I speak? That's extraordinarily complex to make words. We don't need to think about that. It's one of the most complicated things that we do. And yet we don't need to think about it. So complexity and consciousness are not the same thing at all. You can be watching a very intelligent debate or watching a movie or listening to music and focusing on this vastly complicated stuff going on around you. And someone will stand on your toe if you're in a theater and suddenly bang, that's where your consciousness lies on. Very simple. Here it is. My toe hurts. The complexity of intelligence, complexity of computation does not give you consciousness. And the reason for that is that if you send all the information down the wires, which is what I think our non-conscious brain is doing all the time, me, I tend to wave my hands around right? when I'm talking, I don't think about it. That's my non-conscious mind doing that. Similarly, it's my non-conscious mind doing all the motions of my lips and tongue, etc., when I speak. That kind of stuff is the stuff that's firing asynchronously in our brain. It still works for the kind of digital computations that it needs to do. And the same kind of digital computations that computers do, they simply send information down wires and we can have computations using all the Boolean logic gates, so the and gate and OR gates and things like this. That all works and you can make extremely intelligent computations and very complex computation, but you don't get a mind out of it. You don't get consciousness out of it. You get a computer. And that's what's driving my hands waving around, <laughs> driving my lips and my tongue and all that kind of stuff. It's a computer. It's our non-conscious mind. But on top of that, we have the stuff we're aware of. And that's where our creativity lies. That's where our emotions lie. That's... We can't think of being creative without using our conscious mind. And that's where stuff comes together because the difference between what happens in our conscious mind and in our non-conscious mind, is, in our non-conscious mind, everything is dissected. When you watch a visual scene described, okay, it says, okay, this is yellow. I'll take that color and I'll process that. This is green. I'll take that color and I'll process that. And it goes down the wires and all of that information is separated. And you may get some answer at the end of it. Okay, this is green and yellow. Maybe it's a yellowing apple or something. You may get an answer out of it, but you don't get consciousness because the information is only in the wires. It's not unified in the electromagnetic field of the brain because those wires aren't firing synchronously. So they don't project their information into the conscious brain. Computers are exactly the same as our non-conscious mind. So my prediction is, despite in seven, 10 years' time, I think I read recently where they're saying they'll build computers as fast as the human mind, my very strong conviction is that they will be equally dumb as the computers that are around today, just faster. They'll not be able to be creative, they'll not be able to do general intelligence kind of stuff that we do with our conscious mind. One of the pioneers of neural networks is lamenting of how clunky they still are that you can take a five-year-old child to a problem, a chain, a rope caught in the spokes of a wheel, and say to that child, get the rope out, and it will be able to do it. First exposure, it will be able to sort out the problem. There is no computer in the world that will be able to do that. In 10 years' time, there will still not be a computer in the world that is able to do that because the problem take, the problem requires all of the information to come together in a conscious mind that can twist and turn and move things around. Whereas if you strip all the information, and process it in different parts of the computer, that's never going to happen. You may still be able to get some kind of an answer, but you will not be able to get that kind of processing that goes on in an electromagnetic object that can be manipulated inside our heads, that is our conscious mind. And that's where the child or us will see the solution to the rope in the spokes of a wheel. When they've never seen it before, because the child can see it and then imagine what happens if I do this and this and pull this rope out. That imagine is what we do in creative activity. And that's why computers will never be creative as well, because they won't be able to do that. So that's my first part. I'm not afraid of computers having an ethical problem with computers because I don't think they'll ever be anything but dumb machines. There is a way of making a computer conscious. But they will require a completely different kind of architecture in which is, it models not only the brain's wires, but the brain's electromagnetic fields as well. So that was really where that question, I think, started. I'm not sure where it ended.
1: So this is reassuring to know that they won't be able to have, for those who have their reservations about the developments and the governance of AI, that they won't be able to have this embodied intelligence and creativity. That is, of course, because there is neural wetware that is being developed. And that would be another way of getting in, like microbially, like getting into the system. That might be something else that we have to think about. Then, the other part of the question is this transhumanism and the electromagnetic fields, and increasingly you know, all the devices around us. How is that affecting our electromagnetic fields and the way we think, perceive, and feel about the world?
2: Well, first, one of the questions are often asked. Is, does my theory explain psychic powers, mm-hmm. telepathy? And no, it doesn't. The problem is that our brain has both evolved and developed to both encode thoughts and decode thoughts. And the structure of each person's brain is going to be fundamentally different. So the thought, the electromagnetic fields that my brain generates is being decoded all the time. Because the thing about the electromagnetic field that is important, I suppose I haven't mentioned, is it's both projected in, the information is projected from the meat, from the neurons into the electromagnetic field. And the electromagnetic field then acts on the neurons to pull and push them around. And that's what we call free will. That's how we, our conscious mind influences our actions. So that's going on in my brain. And my brain has developed over... <laughs> goodness how many years to do that. And it works with the structure of my brain where all of the information is encoded in a certain way and every neuron knows where everything else is because they've developed together. Now, if you're in the same room as me, then the electromagnetic fields of your brain may be transmitted to me, but I couldn't decode them. They're only decodable in your brain. So I don't think there's any danger of, of telepathy. Well, I don't think telepathy could be accounted for by this other electromagnetic fields. We know that some electromagnetic fields do affect our brain. There's a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation, in which someone puts a kind of helmet on your head that projects some magnetic fields into your brain, and they affect your behavior. And they're being experimented on, as we speak, as methods of trying to treat mental illness, for example, or epilepsy, or other disorders. So we know that Electromagnetic fields applied to your brain can influence your thoughts. And to me, it makes sense that the, the electromagnetic fields that our brain generates also influences our thoughts, but it does mean that it's a particular kind of electromagnetic fields. So magnetic fields, for example, which are the kind that are most common around us, they don't penetrate into the skull very much because they're absorbed by charged tissue, magnetic fields do penetrate more. But again, to change things, you've got to have the right frequencies, the right amplitude, and it's difficult to predict exactly what the effects will be. And this is the problem with transcranial magnetic stimulation, it's just trial and error, really, to try to find out how to stimulate a person to maybe, for example, being used in patients who have depression, and they just try out various frequencies and various amplitudes and hope that something works, and sometimes it does. But there doesn't seem to be an easy way of predicting what will happen, because remember our electromagnetic field in the brain is the most complex electromagnetic object in the known universe. So it's going to be a difficult object to manipulate.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this is something that could really be isolated, but it's just in terms of we're surrounded by so many of these other waves, like like obviously Wi-Fi and all these means of connection, whether that can interfere with, you were speaking before about creativity and intuition and how do we get our thoughts, can that interfere with that or what have studies shown about that?
2: I think the data is very tenuous. So I don't think they're going to cause any problem. I think in terms of creativity and stuff, I think there's an interesting thing there. And what is creative? What is art and emotion an emotional experiences, particularly associated with art? It's about. And I've been thinking about it quite a lot recently. If you sit, sometimes you see a painting, you gosh, that's a a painting of Giorgio, which has this effect on me. I think, gosh, there's something interesting going on in here. I don't know what it is, but it affects me emotionally. And I think there is a problem with the electromagnetic field, if you like, in the brain. And, you know, you have this great idea and this great insight And it's inside your head, encoded in this really complex electromagnetic object. And you can't get that out, except by dissecting it and putting it down the neurons. And then that destroys a lot of the holistic nature of the idea and the feeling that you have in your head. And you try to communicate it, and it doesn't work very well. So what does art do? I think what art does is it tries to generate this communication of this complex object inside your head, which is an artist's idea of painting painting of a great portrait, and painting it in such a way that the reader, perceiver of this, has a similar feeling inside it, so out of And that's because it's going to feed information through you. So know, what's the different roots? And the hope is, of the artist, that all of those different roots and that instance Different information recreate this object that they had in their head in your head, and it could be by listening to a, uh, a symphony. I listened to something by uh, God's some reason by Philip Glass. It was a fantastic kind of symphonic stuff with dance and video and kind of theater in it as well. And it's throwing all of this at you. And the hope I think of the artist is that doing this kind of multi-sensory projection to try to grow in your mind, the idea that Philip Glass had in his mind when he was writing this music and just talking it through, if he, if Philip Glass had just said, well, I was going to listen this, list, then it's dissected and it's gone. The magic of it was its holistic nature. And somehow you've got to recreate this holistic nature in someone else's mind. And I think that's really what art is all about is communicating these big complex objects, which are ideas inside our head, but in a non-dissected way in which the object isn't completely dissected, or it's dissected in such a way it can be reassembled in somebody else's mind. So you get a full experience of what the artist had or as close as he or she can make it. So I think that to me is what art does. It's a way of communicating these wonderful ideas and feelings that we have inside our head and they're trapped there and art allows you by playing music or painting or writing poetry or whatever. It allows you to communicate this in this holistic kind of way usually by pulling together lots of different ideas and thoughts and comes together in your mind in the way that the artist intended actually.
0: Hi, my name is Song Lee, and I am a student at the University of California, Davis, and I'm also a sustainability podcast producer for the creative process. It is most enlightening to hear Dr. McFadden discuss the evolution of science as a process of simplification. Simplicity might not have been the first thought people have when discussing science, yet compared to explaining the natural phenomena of the world as the mysterious and enigmatic will of the god or gods, a scientific explanation supported by logic and reason does seem a lot simpler. And even though there are some complicated scientific fields, such as theoretical physics, they are still simplifying and it is in this simplifying process that some of the most influential ideas are born, such as string theory, which hopes to become the theory of everything. In addition, the process of simplification may be eye-opening to people practicing science in that it gives us an origin story to the development of sciences. We all know what science is, but how many of us actually know how it was born and developed? Science is a tool. Similar to a shovel, it allows us to dig for the truth. All tools are invented and improved through time. And by understanding the process of its development, we can have a greater appreciation for science and knowledge on how to best apply it. Another fascinating point in this discussion is on the concept of the conscious electromagnetic information field. What a fascinating idea regarding the source of human consciousness. Combining the material interlinkages between neurons with the ephemeral electromagnetic waves, what really caught my eye was its implication on the meaning of arts. As Dr. McFadden describes, there are ways we can express our emotions and consciousness, though they are limited, and thus they result in some form of loss in meaning. However, through arts conscious mind of the artist can be fully expressed, emotions and thoughts transcribed and planted in the minds of the audience. I wonder, is this what makes music, film, painting and so many other art forms so captivating? The feelings these art forms evoke are not just our own, but experiences of the artist. And as we experience art, the minds between people are bridged. And barriers broken down into understanding and empathy. In the meantime, this does remind me of the philosophical debate of who can truly define the meaning of an art piece. Is it the artist who imbued their conscious thoughts into it for others to experience? Or is it the audience who projects their interpretation onto the artwork? Or perhaps it is a mixture of both? I think this is a question that is worth our consideration. Now, let's go back to the interview.
1: And so it's really interesting, as you go bringing it back to Life is Simple, how these different cosmologies, a way of understanding the world, be it art, be it spiritual practices, be it science, are really ways of understanding the world. And as you beautifully expressed, a work of art is a way of understanding another person's consciousness. I think it's why it just fascinates us so much, because when we get to that moment, it's so fulfilling. I think that one of the interesting questions to ask of any person when you're dealing with them, first of all, to try to understand through which are their primary senses for experiencing the world. Um, mm-hmm. And as you brought uh, through that metaphor, how a painting could be transmitted, to, you could ha- have the experiences of the painter and you could really come to that understanding through that, that metaphor of art. And the same is the case with science and religion. These are ways of understanding the world. I was wondering, as you considered, as you wrote this history and going back to medieval thinkers, were there any thinkers that maybe deserve a second look, knowing what we know now, that were just like intuitions, as you say, Occam predated Einstein with some things that he had written, but now could be expanded upon and measured?
2: Yeah, one of the, much later than the medieval world, but uh, say Alfred Russell Wallace, who's simultaneously discovered natural selection, much ignored, and he has some great ideas about natural selection and some that we are discovering today or right today. In the medieval world, there's, I can't think of anyone who is someone who has a statue of, um, I mean, there's people who were influenced by William Walken like Gene Buridan, one of the first people to Imagine that the, that the earth could spin rather than the stars moving the around. These are people who came up with great ideas and they're forgotten because they're overwhelmed by the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And I think there's a lot of people were remaining to be discovered in the medieval world, partly because all of their works are often in Latin and only Latin scholars could read them. And when Latin scholars write papers, they do something very irritating, they quote in Latin. So they don't give you the translations. So it's really difficult. And it makes this whole world of of science and thoughts about science and religion and the way the world works in the medieval world. We're locked out of it because it's still written in Latin and the Latin scholars don't let us read it because they still keep to their own Latin language. But I'm sure there are many interesting scholars out there yet to be discovered in in that medieval world.
1: I guess I should ask, in closing, as you consider your work and you think about the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, what have been some important life lessons and teachers for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: I think for me, the most important thing is to get multiple streams of information. As I was describing with consciousness and the great ideas, they come in from listening to lots of different stuff. And I think the great danger, you know, one of the great dangers in our world today is that uh, the media that we have created is allowing this self-fulfillment of ideas that people are going into their own social networks that are feeding back to them the ideas that they already have and they're not listening to other stuff and people are becoming more and more polarized. I think that's a real problem. And I think what... Religion and art and science, and to a certain even religion, as well as we take a broad view of religion and look at other people's religions as well. But they, what they do is you accept anything. You don't deny anything. You accept everything, at least to look at it and to consider it and to evaluate it and to weigh it up with your own ideas. And I think too much is happening in the world today where people are being. To a certain extent, it's always happened. People who are conservative, say in the UK, they buy particular newspapers. The telewealth, for example, is the most conservative newspaper. You buy more liberal you buy the Guardian. So that's always happened to a certain extent. But now with social media, it's happening to a dangerous extent, I think, in which people are only seeing their ideas, that they're reflecting their own ideas back at them. Because that's how advertising is, generating revenue on platforms. I think that's a danger of us all getting into our own areas in which we feel comfortable with. Anything out there is alien, and therefore something to be fought against. And I think that's really the antipathy of the kind of world that I was hoping it would living in the future, where everyone is accepting, everyone is trying to understand each other, and yet people are wrapping themselves up in their own little nest of ideas. And I think people need to break open out of nests and read lots of different stuff. Listen to lots of different people, hear lots of opinions, and then I think we'll come to a more broad understanding of each other. And this is what we need in in our world to understand each other. And I think the work of science, the work of artists, the work of writers should be directed towards gaining understanding, even of the people who are your enemies. Why are they thinking the way they are? And if we just label them in that Medieval way as just demons as people who are evil, people who are wrong, then we'll never come to a kind of level of understanding. And I think that's really what we need to try to do—to open our minds to other ideas and trying to understand why people do terrible sayings. Often, and one of the great films I've watched, and I remember watching is back a film called *Battle for Algiers*. Apparently made it, but it's beautiful it's got great music as well in it. And it takes you into the mind of, say, a young woman, a young Arabic woman at the time, who puts a bomb into a bar full of teenagers and you are sympathetic to her. And that, I think, is the greatest thing that you can do in art. Make, give you the understanding of another mind that's completely different from your own and understand, yes, they got to that point through some process that made sense to them. And I think that's what we need to do much more of, to try to gain understanding from each other's perspective, rather than labeling things. And this is what William Ockham did in the 13th century, he broke down barriers and said, there's no, okay, anyone can do science and you can have your own ideas, only ideas, there's no right and wrong about things, just go for the simplest solutions. So, for example, he was very interested in rights as well. And he said, how do you distribute rights? He said, well, everyone has the same rights. Simplest solution. We all have the same rights, but food, shelter, not to be imprisoned unfairly. And how do we know what are those natural rights? Because we can all agree on them. We all got in together and said, okay, what do we think of the fundamental rights? I want to feed myself. I want to feed my children. I want to have a roof over my head. Let's say that those are the most fundamental rights and build up from that. So I think talking to people, getting to understand them, each other, different perspectives. That's what I think is the greatest thing that education can give us, different perspectives on the world.
1: Well, thank you for this conversation, which just scratches the surface of Life is Simple and your work. Thank you, Professor John-Joe McFadden for sharing your insights into science, philosophy, religion, history, the simplicity underlining complexity and the mysteries of the universe, creativity and AI. By helping us understand our minds, we can create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Mia.
0: Keep it simple. That's my advice. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Yen Foundation. The interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Sung Li. The digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preissler and Megan Hagenbarth. What a Time was composed by Nicholas and Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.